This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Could a present-day sequel to a 1980s film be as excellent as the original? Climb into the phone booth and let's find out. Once again, it's time for The Idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, a most triumphant defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of excellent dudes. My name's Will, and joining me as always is my most non, non, non heinous friend and co-host, Ray. <laughs> that was an amazing intro today. <laughs> it's just off the top of my head, you know, <laughs> not something I was planning. Um, hey, today on the show, we're we're so excited because we've been excited about this for weeks now and had had to have mostly kept it under wraps. But today on the show, we're going to be talking about Bill and Ted Face the Music. Instead of holding back our interview and making you wait with anticipation, first, you'll hear our spoiler-free chat with Bill S. Preston Esquire himself, Mr. Alex Winter. So again, it's spoiler-free. You can listen to the interview and not worry about the new movie being ruined for you. And then after the interview, Ray and I are going to come back and we'll discuss Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, And at that point, we're going to do a spoiler-filled recap. So if you haven't seen the movie, you're going to want to see it before you listen to that part of the show. We'll tell you about most of the Easter eggs we've spotted. And we'll also learn whether the three concerns Ray had after we watched the trailer together, whether or not those were addressed. Mm -hmm. Is that it? That's all, right? Didn't we get some some mail? Uh, Yes, Let's talk about that in our news segment. Thank you for your cooperation. So we got this email recently from uh, listener Cheryl, who writes, You guys look nothing like you sound like on your podcast, but I still love your show. Okay. Now. now <laughs> and that's when I asked, were you expecting Tango and Cash? Yeah. Yes. To what she says, and no, Bob and Doug McKenzie. That's what she expected. Yeah. And then she she says... Actually, when I saw you, it was better than I thought. So I think no matter how you slice this, uh, this was a polite way of saying we have faces for radio. Um, I'm going to take that as a win. Well, being compared to Bob and Doug, I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks, Cheryl, for writing us, and thanks for listening to the show. If you've been disappointed in how we turned out to be, <laughs> you can also reach us on Facebook, where we're known as The Idiots, or you can email us at uh, info at Pod. Dot com. Make sure you put that pod in there. Uh, okay, so hey, before we chat, again, spoiler free with Alex Winter, let's get caught up on 80s news. Speaking of sequels, we've got a couple of sequel bits of 1980s sequel reboot news. Uh, this comes to us from Deadline. Paramount Pictures has set a remake of the classic John Hughes 1987 road trip comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring... Will Smith, and Kevin Hart. What are your initial thoughts about this? Uh, My initial thoughts on this are, this is unneeded Mm -hmm. and unwanted. Yes, I agree. I have nothing against Will Smith and Kevin Hart. I'm a big fan of both of those guys. I've liked a lot of their films. But there's, yeah, there's just a, you know, pantheon, I think that's a word, of 
movies, many of which from the 1980s, that don't need to be remade. Probably none of them. I mean, that would be a much shorter <laughs> list. Like to think of a movie from the 80s that would think, they should probably remake this. Yeah, I just, it just boggles my mind that this is, this is something that they would pick. So Deadline writes that the film seems like an ideal, ideal one for a new version from Paramount. It was very funny, but writer-director John Hughes made it exceptionally touching considering the high-concept road trip premise. Wait, why does it seem like an ideal for a new version then? Deadline? I do not see that captured in that one sentence there. This, I feel like this is the kind of thing that happens when a bunch of agents get together and figure out, how can we make money for our clients? Mm-hmm. You guys represent a movie studio. You've got a screenwriter. We've got actors. We could probably get somebody to fund a, a remake of a hit movie. Garbage. You know, all this is leading up to us just talking today about a very successful sequel to a beloved franchise. All right, speaking of uh, beloved films and questioning whether you should touch them or not, and this comes to us from IGN, and IGN actually refers to the fact that during an online master class as part of a Fantasia's International Film Festival, director John Carpenter mentioned that all out of all of his movies talking Halloween, Escape from New York, so on and so on. He's most proud of 1982's The Thing. Oh, I can I can see that. Would you say that's your favorite John Carpenter movie? Probably would, yeah. Because that thing is just creepy and the special effects are amazing. Yeah. And there's not a bad part to that movie. Yeah, solid, solid. Yeah. And recently, I don't know if we talked about this on air, that I'm, I've joined this movement to hunt down Rob Bottin, the special effects artist who created the terrifying still today holds up special effects uh from the thing um yeah that's a solid film there's like nothing you would change in that and of course they tried to reboot it in 2011 (laughs) with a quote-unquote prequel that was also called the thing Mm -hmm. now i guess in in anyone's defense of doing a, a remake of anything of course the thing is itself a remake of a 1950s film called the thing from another planet which is an adaptation of a book but carpenter got it right um, but on top of mentioning this, John Carpenter also off- offered up a, a sort of a vague update to the, the Blumhouse uh, reboot that's coming up of the thing. So if you recall, we talked about this when it was announced back in January that um, Blumhouse is making a reboot of the thing that's going to be uh, dive into the story a little bit more because they're going to be using some recently unearthed uh, lost pages from the original novella uh, from 1938 upon which all these films were based um, the lost pages are referred have been referred to as frozen hell. But what Carpenter says is uh, that I think this is a quote. I think Jason Blum is going to be working on the thing, rebooting the thing. I may be involved with that, maybe down the road. So hey, I don't know. That that would be good news. I don't know why he'd have to do it. But if you're gonna, I guess, touch you know something from the 1980s, why not have? You should have the original creator involved. The The problem with that is the cast was so good. Yeah. You can't recreate something like that. Yeah. The, the chemistry of that cast is perfect, and it's not something that you can easily do. Yeah. And what would the story... Well, I, I guess we know the story is going to be just... The, it's going to be the same story, but mm-hmm. they're, they're expanding it somehow. But yeah, you're right. There was that magic. Of course, I mean, look, we love Kurt Russell. How do you recapture that? Yeah. Keith David... Mm-hmm. Wilford Brimley, terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a very understated, you know, role or performance. But yeah, I agree. So look at that. I guess two films we be lo- we would love, 
we don't want to see touched. We don't need another version of it. And, and one of them has the original guy involved and still we're like, mm. now what if, what if Carpenter said he was making a sequel? And I asked this because in connection with mm. us talking about Bill and Ted face the music today. Now, if he did a sequel, do we get Kurt Russell back? Mm, I guess you're right. You, you need that. That's why it's one of the reasons Face the Music is successful. You couldn't cast other folks. Yeah, I don't know what that would mean. If you, you, could, you could have Kurt Russell and Keith David back. Are they still in the snow trying to figure out who's who? They're just... <laughs> are, they, are they Captain America and they're being thawed out from like a block of ice 30 years later? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe John Carpenter's just there to make sure it's uh, ruined and never happens. <laughs> That's his secret mission. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, in other news, and this is re- related uh, to our f- main topic today, and this comes to us from ScreenRant.com. ScreenRant reports that Bill and Ted fans break the world record for most simultaneous air guitars, which uh, I've learned in, in reading about this story is the record wasn't that impressive to begin with. What, what was it? A couple hundred? Not even. It was 100. The original record was 100. So it seems that Orion Films helped get this together, I'm guessing, because they released a video that showed it, uh, the record being broken, and then also the clip includes uh, someone from the Guinness Book of Records, World Records, um, reporting that they, in fact, did break the record and awarding this uh, record. Um, so the minimum they had to beat was 100 people. This video from Orion, you know, again, documents this attempt in uh you can't really tell from the video, but um, apparently there was 186 people participating, so they crushed the old record, and uh, they had to continue air guitaring for 90 seconds. Uh, and they did it, and they achieved the <laughs> world record. I, I don't know. I don't think they get to split the prize, or, you know, it's going to be at 186 people's houses. But this is a kind of fun way, I guess, of, uh, you know, showing folks love for these these characters, Bill and Ted. That's a pretty cool story. But you know it would be even better, people? You love Bill and Ted? Watch the movie. Seriously, watch it. It's really good. You're not going to be disappointed. And with that, I guess we can conclude the news, right? Yeah, let's get out of this news garbage and move on. Let's go. Dun, 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 dun. Hey, before we continue here, like, subscribe, rate, review, do all those things to, you know, keep in touch with the podcast. And also, it allows other folks to find the podcast it has to do with technology. You don't need to know. Just trust us. If you like us, here's a free way to help us continue to grow and talk to super cool celebrities like Alex Winter, like Harold Faltemeyer. We just, you know, you can still listen to that shows out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do all those things. And, and turn yourself into a human billboard and go over to T Public and get yourself a shirt. <laughs> I thought you were going in a different direction, but that's, yes, you could do that. All right. As promised. We'll be right back with our spoiler-free chat with Alex Winter. Our guest today began acting at a mere eight years of age and would ultimately appear on stage in on- and off-Broadway productions, including The King and I and Peter Pan. Later, throughout the 1980s, our guest appeared in a number of films, including The Lost Boys. But he's most well-known as one half of the titular duo in 1989's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and its follow-up Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. 
Throughout the last two decades, however, our guest has focused on filmmaking, earning a reputation for poignant and enlightening documentaries, including his most recent endeavor, Showbiz Kids. But just this past week, to the delight of fans around the world, our guest returns to the silver screen as an actor, reprising his iconic role of Bill S. Preston Esquire in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Please welcome to the show, Alex Winter. Hey, how are you? <laughs> We're good. How Great. are you? Good, good. Good. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you chatting with us today. Uh, we were just realizing before we talked here that uh, we owe in part our show to, uh, you know, the archetypes of, of Bill and Ted, because Ray and I are a, a couple of guys who happen to be brilliant sometimes or ridiculous other times and rely on <laughs> people with more knowledge than us to help make our case every week that uh, the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture. We'll fight your decade. Um, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice. It's nice to throw a thread in at the end. Uh, we had the great pleasure of seeing uh, Bill and Ted face the music. And, you know, we are very cynical when it comes to remakes, reboots, sequels, whatever they're called to get them in under the radar. And we couldn't have been more excited and happy to truly just love the movie. Uh, have it, you know, connect so much to the tone and theme of the old film, but old, the, the two original films, but advance it in a way. That was new. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. You're like, was that a question? You agree that it had anything to do with us and uh, not mostly the writers, but well, that's, that's awesome. You, you know what it felt like? It felt like that kid from high school that used to make you laugh till your stomach hurt and you wonder what happened to him. And then 30 years later, you run into him at a bar and he's still just as funny as he was back in high school. <laughs> and you're so glad. That's great. As having been a filmmaker now since the, the last, uh, you know, since Bill and Ted 2, did you have a different perspective, appreciation, approach for getting uh, in making a new uh, Bill and Ted film? Well, we, we put a lot of effort into it. Um, the, the writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon came to us with the idea for this um, quite a while ago. And Karen and I both thought it had a lot of, a lot of comic possibility. Um, yeah. And we, uh, you know, we had a, uh, a real vested interest in seeing this thing get done once we, we committed to the idea. And so it, it gave us a lot of time along the long road of getting it made to contemplate how to play these guys, who these guys would be. Mm. And, um, and by the time we got the thing financed and we're off and running, we had plenty of time to wrap our heads around it, but it was, you know, it was challenging. We didn't want them to feel like caricatures or throwbacks to the originals. We wanted them to be their own guys and, have their own sort of new look at the world. And uh, it was, um, yeah, it was challenging, but also very gratifying in its own way and sort of a sweet family reunion. So knowing that the the sequel was long and coming, was there ever a point where you were getting too, you were delving further into the world of, of you know, documentaries and uh, Kiana was becoming a mythological assassin uh, that it seemed like out of reach that maybe you had both moved on and maybe it, it just the time had passed or was it always, whenever this can come together, we're going to do it. It was that, I mean, it was, it was, we really hoped it got made. We weren't sure it was ever going to get made. We both got on with our lives. We would check in, we would do whatever we can with it. Um, but no, uh, you know, we, we didn't really have any set firm idea that it was actually going to get made until, um, uh, very close to when we actually went, just because of the way the financing worked. 
Mm. And then suddenly we're like, oh, wow, okay, we're actually doing Bill and Ted 3. Okay, let's go. <laughs> it is surprising. You know, uh, we were speaking with a journalist, Hadley Freeman, not too long ago about how movies like this don't get made anymore. Yeah. And maybe not since the 1980s because of the, the studio structure now. Yeah. And it's, it's a shame because these are the human tales that many people can connect to. And I know we've got global markets to be concerned about, but um, it does seem like kind of a miracle that you were able to pull this off. Um, I, I, I was reading that uh, Steven Soderbergh may have uh, played a part in that. Is that correct? Well, uh, every, it was all hands on deck. Thankfully, um, we had a lot of people who were really passionate about seeing this get done. And uh, ultimately, it took every single hand on deck. Ed Solomon, the, you know, one of the writers of, sure. of all three movies, uh, has been working with Steven Soderbergh for the last few years. And, and it turned out he was a big fan of the first two. And so he came on as an exec producer. Um, so and it, it got to a point and in the last hurdle where it really took everybody um, pitching in to get it up and over the hump. And uh, we're very grateful to have so much support. It, it really got it done. So uh, obviously, you, know, you play this character, Bill, uh, so many times. I may have in part become an attorney because, uh, you know, Bill refers to himself as Esquire so many times. Uh, and I didn't know what that was at the time. But uh, once I found out what that was and then realized, Bill, what fact wasn't that? But um, w- knowing somewhat about your history, having read about you, knowing that, you, you know, you came to L.A. via New York by way of New Jersey on the way home from Missouri, maybe, and so on, that how is it that you found or, or, or maybe you had within your, certainly you're an actor and a talented one you studied, but that you had this SoCal, you know, metal stoner sort of inside of you? Well, it, it's, there are aspects of, of this character that I could draw upon just from my own childhood, having really close friends living in a world of your imagination mm. where you sort of, you know, build a whole universe with a very close best friend. Um, there's a lot of kids' childhoods, and it, that was very much mine. Um, and I drew from that. I had really no cultural history with the character at all. Um, he's not really a stoner. He's, a, he's like a valley kid from the valley. And, sure. Um, uh, I mean, I grew up loving rock music. My first, first rock concert I ever saw was Kiss um, in 77 at the St. Louis Checker Dome, just to date myself. There's no longer a Checker Dome. Um, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, uh, it was, um, you know, there were aspects of growing up in America that I could relate to very much, uh, in terms of who these guys were. And, um, but it was mostly about friendship and, and imagination and how you view the world and how you come at the world. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's neat. I know you've, you've probably seen, or maybe you haven't that, uh, you know, the recently leaked footage from your original audition, seeing you audition a number against a few different Ted's and it was interesting or exciting to see how the characters evolved even from the audition process to the screen, you know, where they, um, they, they seemed a little more, uh, homogenous, I guess, during the auditions and then really, you know, ultimately over so, so unique, uh, and wonderful. It's, it's Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, There's no question. My voice didn't go up at the end. Uh, there, there's something Shakespearean. It strikes me about Bill and Ted. Uh, they speak in this sort of, you know, elevated language that you really got to pay attention to at time to get what they're saying. Maybe a layperson's perspective of a production of Shakespeare. You know, using broad uh, gestures. Uh, was this a conscious choice? Uh, was it something that you just ha- fell upon? Was it something that Ed and Chris did in their routine that... Uh, 
No, we hadn't seen their routine when we auditioned. Um, and the one thing, Kaylin, when I forgot until someone showed us these audition tapes last week was how much of the characters we had kind of come up with even early on. Um, you know, we, we both came from a theater background, so we both came at these guys with this weird combination of kind of a grounded belief in their, in their world and not sort of making them into arch characters, but, but very physical, um, almost theatrical, uh, in, in the way they moved and the way they spoke. And I think the language of the script kind of sparked us to do that. The language was, is so floral and ornate and, and over the top that, I think both of us kind of read those those pages and thought, well, how do you do this and actually act like you mean it? You know, <laughs> like and uh, and yeah. it sort of required this very physical kind of response. Um, and uh, so that's what we both did. And it was it's funny because we didn't remember that that's what we did, but we looked at them <laughs> and we're like, oh, we actually we'd actually constructed quite a bit of these guys pretty early on. And it does sound like you were describing is the way, you know, a young actor would break down Shakespeare's text, you know, uh, trying to, how do I make this my own when it sounds like, when it's a foreign language? Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with, with Face the Music uh, poised to be the number one movie of 2020, are you guys already planning to continue the franchise? Uh, nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we it, it was so it took so much work to get here uh it would uh it took so much work to get to this point yeah um and uh it was uh you know a lot of effort to to find these guys and to try to make this movie something that was super entertaining um that uh, we couldn't really envision anything beyond it. I mean, look, if the, the fans got us here, you know, it was really their vocal desire for another one that really helped us get this one financed. Mm. Um, and uh, it was, uh, if there's another one, it's because the fans want another one. I, I think it's going to be, be because it was a huge blockbuster hit and the studios are going to be banging <laughs> on your guy's door. <laughs> well, from your mouth to God's ear, I, <laughs> I hope so. Well, you're probably yeah. simultaneously worried, but also in a since he worried this, you know, the era of the pandemic that we're living in, where we can't now just you know simply go to a movie theater anymore. It's, it's such a you know, who would have thought just months ago? Um, but it seems like you have a great opportunity here, which it's, with the combination streaming platform and movie release to, like, as Ray suggests, really you know just take over because there isn't any content out there now. Um, again, look, I make a lot of statements, uh, Mr. Winter. I don't yeah. necessarily. Okay. Yeah. Where's the yeah, question? I was like, how well, do I shake that into a question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. Yes. No. Well, yeah. so if we're not going to get a sequel to, uh, face the music, then is there, are, are we going to get uh freaked to the frequel? <laughs> that'll, that'll be a, a very stone cold day in hell before that ever occurs. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> that movie's amazing. Yes. Well, <laughs> Thank you. It was so, so we might not be getting Bill and Ted four because of the process was, you know, so challenging. <laughs> Is that suggesting that maybe freaked was an even more Herculean endeavor to get that to screen? Well, it was just a, it was a Herculean endeavor to make it. It, it was such a complicated movie. Um, <laughs> and it was all almost all physical effects sure. and there were a lot of them. And, uh, I don't think, I think it's the kind of movie you make when you're young. 
you know. That <laughs> <laughs> you could spend hours in prosthetics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't think it's the kind of thing you do when you're not when you're no longer uh, incredibly foolish and young <laughs> enough to, to withstand the consequences of being foolish. So, yeah. so what you're saying is there's never going to be a full length movie of barbecue either, then, huh? I think that's unlikely. I think that uh, that uh, I think also everything that that film needed to be was encapsulated in its uh, in its 11 minutes or whatever it yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, it's a yeah, eleven minutes of perfection. <laughs> you know, thinking about uh, Freaked and even Bogus Journey, and in the new film, an idiot box. It seems like a lot of your times we've seen you on screen. We, screen, we didn't see you on screen. You, you often did have uh, prosthetics on, or you're playing larger than life characters. Is there? It sounds this sounds like pop psychology, but is there maybe a greater comfort or ease that you feel being able to emerge yourself in a character that's you know less recognizable than? Yourself? Um, I like, I mean, I grew up doing theater uh, and uh, I like intense character-based work. Uh, it is very liberating. You, you get to completely inhabit somebody else or you get to, to bring out an aspect of yourself through something that isn't you. And uh, I do very much like that. It's, it's, it, it's, it's gratifying. I was really grateful that you know, I, I had left acting professionally some years ago and when I'd been looking to come back a little bit for the last few years. And it was fun to, uh, to do that with Bill and Ted because I really like, uh, character based work and I like, you know, working with makeup or just with sort of playing, um, you know, very different characters from who I am or sort of finding the aspect of you within them. And, and this movie gave us that in spades in all these different ways. So it was, it was really fun for both of us to act in this because there was just so much meat on the bone every day. There was so much to do. Right. Yeah. It's some of the greatest scenes in the, in the, in the current yeah. film were seeing you guys act opposite yourselves. I mean, it was just every time that happened, it just lit up the screen. But it's it's hard not to do spoilers right now because I want to tell you what my favorite <laughs> scene was, but I, I'll give you two clues. I'll give you two words: British and buckets. <laughs> Took me a moment. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, what what folks do know, certainly at least from the trailer, is that the, you know this film is ultimately about, or at least in part, about um, something we can all relate to: being reaching middle age and maybe not having accomplished you know the one or two things that we set out to do or thought we wanted to do. Um, you've done a lot. This is going to, I wonder if this is the question you'll get asked. Will people phrase this the most during this junket? Um, after being in, you know, beloved movie, a beloved movie franchise, being a successful filmmaker, what's left for Alex Winter to accomplish? Uh, I just, you know, I like doing my work. Um, I've got three kids and I've still got a lot of work to do there with mm. those guys, those chuckleheads. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> making sure they're all right. Uh, but, you know, I, I like telling stories and there's a lot more stories to tell. Um, I'd like to do more acting again. Um, I was sort of grateful for the time away that I had. I'd been doing it for a very long time when I stopped. Um, but, uh, you know, a little bit more acting and finding new and interesting stories to tell in the doc space and other areas. Oh, yeah. So. Okay, so a, a couple of fan questions and then we'll let you go. This is what questions we, we were asked to ask you. Have you ever, performing one of your big characters, I imagine this is in connection with, carried one of your mannerisms or I guess even the sayings, you know, Bill and Ted, 
uh, into real life. So, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure today still folks still come up to you and say excellent party on, etc. You know that uh, it's easy to see a film, even as, a, as an audience member yourself, and be infected and caught up in these roles. But as an actor, having, you know, played a role on screen often, you know, long enough, do you find yourself coming home and torturing your family by behaving like a character you've played on screen? No, no, I've always been pretty good about not bringing work home, um, even on the directing, writing side. I, I leave the work on the floor. Um, and uh, I think because maybe because I started, I started as a professional actor so young. Um, yeah. And so there, my life was always very compartmental. I was in school during the day and on stage at night for a large part of my childhood every single day. Um, and so my sort of normal day-to-day life was very different than my entertainment industry life. Um, so I'm pretty good about leaving, leaving that on the floor when I, when I leave and picking it up again, when I go back (laughs) and, uh, yeah, but it's, uh, it's not always easy, but I think it's important to do, to have, to maintain, um, you know, that, those lines. I guess it would be like a doctor coming home and trying to perform surgery on a family member. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let me let me get into your brain with the scalpel just for fun. <laughs> or, or having a maybe a parent that's a psychotherapist that would be challenging, I think. Um, yes, yeah, that yeah, often doesn't end well. <laughs> you often yeah. end up in therapy with a different therapist that you pay. That's right. <laughs> uh, here, here's another fan question. It's, it's, uh, it seems that the telephone booth uh, is a parody of Doctor Who, uh, whereas Bill and Ted's phone booth is not bigger on the inside, which leaves us wondering how cramped was it to be in that phone booth. It was very cramped, yeah, um, especially in Bill and Ted 1. and Bill and Ted 2, we didn't really travel in the booth with in Bill and Ted 3 with lots of people. Um, but in Bill and Ted 1, we very much did, and uh, it, was, it was very challenging um, and uh, smelly, uh, very, very smelly. We, sh- we shot in, uh, in Phoenix, in, and it was yep. extremely hot. For some reason, we always shoot these movies in the dead of summer in some godforsaken <laughs> place. In the desert. And uh, we were in, in, you know, in very close quarters with, with – and I don't know why Abe Lincoln smelled like he had been alive since you know, for <laughs> two, <laughs> 200 years. Civil War. But, uh, but he, he did. Um, I think, I think it's his wardrobe was like a giant black blanket, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and it wasn't a gag phone booth at all. It was just a legit size, more or less. No, size no. Are you kidding? On, on one, it was like, yeah. it was just some ratty phone booth that they yeah. like, you know, stuck <laughs> the circus of time in. Yeah. And, a, you know, I remember in the fifties, yeah. that was, you know, a fad <sighs> briefly, uh, telephone stuffing or something they called it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, okay. One last, all right. That was wrong. One more fan question. When you're, this is a time related question. When you're microwaving food, do you open the door before the timer, before the cooking is done on the microwave, or do you wait for the full cycle to go through and it beeps? Oh, uh, I, oh, on a microwave, I open the door. I like getting my food out of that radioactive box as quickly as humanly possible. (laughs) That's, that's the correct answer. Yeah. There was was right and wrong answers. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're grateful for your time uh, so much. You know, uh, your the characters in all your films, obviously beyond Bill and Ted, obviously we're that's what brought us together today, but certainly we appreciate uh, all the contributions you've made to fiction and the world of documentaries. We enjoy those films as well. Um, and we'll encourage everybody to go and see Bill and Ted Face the Music because we had a blast and we think anybody of our generation who grew up in the 80s or grew up loving the 80s will also love the film. Oh, thank you. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. 
So that was amazing, you know, <laughs> and it's going to be hard to top. But the uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music fun doesn't stop there because now Ray and I are going to provide our spoiler-filled recap of Bill and Ted Face the Music. We'll also tell you about most of the Easter eggs we spotted, and we'll find out if the three concerns Ray had after we watched the trailer together many weeks ago, whether or not those three concerns were addressed. Uh, so if you don't want to have any part of the movie ruined for you, pause, go watch the movie, then come back and unpause. We'll wait for you. Mm-hmm. If you just came back from unpausing, welcome back. All right, so hey, let's get started. So of course, we are talking today about Bill and Ted Face the Music, the third film in the Bill and Ted, what seems like might be a trilogy, but certainly is a franchise, mm-hmm. written by the creators of Bill and Ted and the writers for all three films, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson, and directed by a newcomer to the Bill and Ted franchise, but not a new newcomer to directing by any means, Dean Pariso, who uh, directed a number of films, including Galaxy Quest, which I love, and Red 2. And, of course, the film stars our guest today, Alex Winter, and his BFF in real life, Keanu Reeves. I guess, just in short, Ray and I were, like, super excited to be able to see this. Like, crazy excited. (laughs) We were. And then we sat down, Mm -hmm. and the first thing went through my head was, what if this sucks, (laughs) and now I have to do the interview with with (laughs) Alex Winter? (laughs) That's right. We were due to talk to him two days after that, I think. Yeah. But luckily, the movie did not suck. Yeah. It opens with a nice recap where we hear the voiceover from the uh, the, the daughters, who we learn are the daughters, mm-hmm. uh, Billy and Thea. Billy's uh, played by Bridget Lundy-Payne and Thea Samara Weaving. As they tell you in this brief uh, recap, uh, it's been 29 years. The band was popular. Uh, but then, uh, like happens to many successful bands, they read it, you know, eventually they fall out of uh, fashion. And they still hadn't written the song that was supposed to unite the world. Uh, And as a result, uh, lately, reality itself is being threatened, and we see various historical figures, you know, disappearing from their reality and popping into another. So uh, Jesus disappears, and I think he's uh, he's walking on water along uh, George Washington's uh, crossing the Delaware, Delaware, and and then Washington is on uh, stage where Kid Cudi should be, and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. We we also learned from some of the images that Death had a solo album. Well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that Death went off on his own. And part of that is, is he sued them <laughs> well, over the naming rights of the band. Yeah, later on we learned that they were in a fight for the, for the name. <laughs> right off the beginning of the movie. I mean, it's hilarious, right? It opens at a wedding. You're not really sure who's getting married yeah. until they finally reveal it's, it's Missy. Mm-hmm. And I think we suspected Missy would be marrying someone. You know, who knows? Again, in Bogus Journey, there was a headline where she was marrying the bad guy in that film. That was part of the montage in the credits so a little bit of a retcon, or maybe they maybe their their uh, engagement was broken off. Mm-hmm. But in fact, she's marrying now Ted's little brother Deacon. Yes, <laughs> which Ted has the best line I think. <laughs> where he says it makes his dad his own son. Yes, uh, and and, and yeah. they you know playing. You get the sense that everybody knows right that they've been trying to play this song to save the world, although not everybody I think believes or understands uh, that um, that they really are supposed to do that or will do that. Um, which is, you know, again, it's a little bit of a retcon because at the end of Bogus Journey, you know, in that montage after that, they play a song at the end of that film. And it seems like the band is wildly popular. You know, everybody knows who they are after that. Well, well, they explain that as, uh, but it turns out that wasn't the song. Mm. That's how they fix that. I see. So yeah, I guess it would be easy for folks then to think that it was never true necessarily. 
Um, of course, one of the other little retcons that happens is that uh, little Bill and uh, Ted, who were also introduced at the end of Bogus Journey, you know, they were being they were in baby carriers on stage during that uh, concert, are now women. Well, technically, they you know, never tell you whether they're boys or girls. So that's true. Technically, right. I was right. okay with that. You're right. It's a behind the scenes thing that I had read that Ed Solomon and uh, Chris Matheson said yes, they were they were going to be boys, but um, I like it much better as them being daughters. Yeah. It'd be too much of a direct comparison, right? If it was yes. guys, unless they went like wildly out of type and they made them like two nerdy dudes or two jocks. Y- yeah. <laughs> and it would have been too hard. It'd been too hard to figure out what to do with them at that point. Yeah. Uh, the other little minor retcon is the daughters are 24 years old, even though mm-hmm. we, we, you know, this last story ended at 29 years ago, but who cares? No one cares about that. Yeah, That detail I'm okay with also. Cause I noticed yeah. that too. So Ted's dad is still, you know, doesn't believe, uh, He's still, I don't know, frustrated with him because uh, he hasn't amounted to anything, just like in the earlier films. And now he's, you know, disappointed that he that not only Bill and Ted are sort of goofing off their their entire lives at this point, but now their kids are too, just uh, milling about the house. All they do is listen to music. Um, it seems that the pressure of writing the World Uniting Song is starting to weigh on the, the two guys, Bill and Ted, and also their relationships with their wives because uh, they do wind up in couples counseling. <laughs> Which is amazing. Which, as Bill and Ted understood it to be, it was for a couple of couples. Yes. As they still refer to everything uh, as the two of them, yeah. as still just being the core of the world for them. Yeah. But I do like that they're the same character, but they're a grown-up version of the same character. I do like that. Yes. Oh, so yeah, and just like Alex you know, pointed out, part of the process was figuring out what would these guys be like in middle age. You know, they didn't want to just, they didn't want to do a parody of themselves from 30 years ago. But I think you're right. They sort of, they figured it out. They're more mature, but they're still Bill and Ted. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, look, I guess we're not, we're not exactly how we were in high school, but there's glimpses of it. Yeah. And that was of the three things I was worried about was how would Keanu do with uh, being Ted again, mm. as he's one of the biggest action stars in the world now. Yeah. And once I saw him on screen and saw how his character had developed, mm-hmm. I was completely happy with that. He, it felt like Ted, yeah. like a grown up Ted, so. Check number one, that problem, no longer a problem. Yeah. So yeah, couples counseling goes just about as well as you'd think if you brought your best friend along yeah. and, and, his, and, and his wife. So the guys leave couples counseling back at the garage. Now they're back at the house, still not having read, read the song, written the song. You know, Ted, it struck me as kind of an emotional moment where Ted is having second thoughts about like, you know, are mm-hmm. we, can we ever really do this? We've been doing it for, he, they say 25 years. Ted says he's going to sell his, uh, what, uh, Fender. He's gonna, yeah, he's going to sell his guitar. Yeah, going to take the money. He's just starting to say it's time to hang it up. And the way Bill reacts is, you know, he gets it. But of course, uh, lo and behold, uh, they don't get further into this discussion because arriving in a giant Mork-like uh, egg <laughs> is someone from the future. Clearly she's from the future because she's wearing clothes that nobody would be caught in today. Um, yeah, and she arrived in a time machine. So, Well, that's true. That's another giveaway. You know, one thing I do appreciate the, throughout the film is a number of uh, times like this where they didn't um, sort of uh, redo or um, you know like the like the costume design like the costume design they did for her and the other people we'll see in the future it's consistent with what, what we saw already you know sometimes they do these films it's like well let's reinvent it based on now 2020 but no mm-hmm. no we already saw the future and they stuck right. with it you know and, and it's a future that we you know people were imagining in the 80s 90s but um but yeah we meet her and here's our first Easter egg Kelly played by uh, Kristen Shaw, is actually named for George Carlin's real-life daughter, Kelly. 
So they have a conversation with Kelly where Kelly's like, you know, the, the, the leaders, I call them the, the great leaders or the supreme, not supreme leaders. It sounds like a, uh, a villain. <laughs> um, the, the, the folks in the future, the, the council, they want to see Bill and Ted. And I noticed that, you know, we see the daughters, Billy and, and Thea watching. And it's the first time that I noticed that uh, Thea, you know, is wearing this oversized red shirt under this kind of overalls. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that that's supposed to look like the shirt that Ted is wearing at the end of Excellent Adventure. Almost like they couldn't find the exact one, so they got something real close to it. And I noticed it's oversized. It's almost as if, you know, she inherited her Uncle Ted's clothing, <laughs> which is kind of cool. But of course, they go off with Kelly, Bill, and Ted because, you know, the future needs to see them. Uh, and so they're going to go and do that. So in the future, I think the first time I got sort of uh, maybe goosebumps was when, when they're in the future now with Kelly and they arrive, they walk past the iconic red phone booth uh, that Rufus first brought to them to travel through, travel through time in uh, Excellent Adventure. And inside, well, first, just seeing that, I was already getting, you know, really mm-hmm. excited. And then we see inside of it, the hologram of Rufus. It's kind of like a museum exhibit where he's, you know, welcoming people to see the, uh, the, the telephone booth that the great ones first used. And you see George Carlin there uh, as this hologram, which is clearly footage from the early film, but I don't know. I just, I, I felt emotional. It was pretty cool how they did this tribute to George Carlin, I thought. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome, and it was also a great use of misdirection. Ah, because you never, you never thought they were going to come back and use the booth, right? You thought it was only going to be Rufus's uh, moment to be in the movie, right? So I never gave it a second thought that they would come back to that. You're right, and even even having seen the trailer, know they traveled in it when we saw it at that <laughs> yeah. moment. I didn't think that either. Yeah. And uh, of course, they use footage from the original film, but he has additional dialogue there, which is actually provided by a, an amazing voice impersonator, a young man. I say young because relative to us, everyone is young at this point, but uh, his name is Piot Michael. He goes by Piot Michael anyway. Um, and he's originally from Cleveland, like Ray is, says. Isn't everybody. Everybody's from Cleveland. You should look him up on YouTube. This guy, again, he, he looks so young. <laughs> He does so many actors' voices. It's incredible. Anyway, we meet the great leader, uh, played by uh, Holland Taylor. And here's another Easter egg for you. Holland Taylor is wearing a pin. It looks very much like, if not the exact thing, of the pin that Rufus wears, you know, where uh, through his collar in the first, at least the first film. I don't think he has it in the second film. Um, and of course, later on, we learn the reason why is because Rufus was... Uh, Married to the great leader. Mm-hmm. Another thing about this scene was this was the second thing in the trailer that we had worried about was the special effects. Mm. Yeah. And seeing the movie, you know, they put probably the worst special effect in the trailer of mm. every special effect in the whole movie. Hmm. And even that, when we watched it, looked great. Yeah. It just looked weird in the trailer the way it was. So, yeah. Problem number two, special effects. Check it off. No problem. And even when they're in the future later on, when it's nighttime and it's dark... It looks like they're really on that platform somewhere, and you know it's not real, but it yeah. looks fantastic. Of course, they learn, you know, what's the essential plot, what's going to drive the story here, is that they, they must play this world-uniting song by 7.17 p.m. that day at, what they're told is, MP46. And in order to do it, they're just provided with a bunch of a, a, a guitars. <laughs> you got everything you need. Now do the song. Get that song ready, because we need that in a few hours. And uh, to help keep track of the time, if you remember in the first film, Excellent Adventure, Rufus gave uh, Ted a watch, told him to make sure he remembers to rewind it because it's, it's bound by San Dimas local time. That's how they know mm-hmm. it. So in this one, Kelly gives them a watch they say belonged to her father. 
Uh, and this one has an inscription inside it, which says, sometimes things don't make sense until the end of the story. She says this is something her father always said. I've got, you know, lots of questions about sort of uh, the logic of the film. And then I pause and say, no, no, I don't need to, I don't need to question these things. You just go along for the ride. Yeah. Um, never once have I questioned any of the logic behind their time travel or their journey to heaven and hell. I'm just riding along, having a good time with these movies. Yeah. I think there's, there may be more Easter eggs in that guitar case than, you know, sort of caught my eye, but the one easy to identify is that the two guitars that Rufus gives them at the end of Excellent Adventure. So it was a very kind of late eighties thing. It was a guitar that was, you know, it's essentially just enough space. What do they call that? I don't know. The area of the guitar just for the strings. Uh, The the stupid guitar with no headstock on it. (laughs) That's what I call it. Basically nothing. It was like a neck (laughs) and the, you know, the base of it is just like a box. Yeah. That's a, that's that stupid eighties guitar they came out with. It was up there with the keytar, which I wanted. I wanted a keytar, <laughs> but you wouldn't give it to me anyway. So that so that's at least one Easter egg in there. So it was all the guitars. So you're right. So like you said before, ultimately they're like, we can't hang out here because we don't know what the song is. We're gonna have to travel to the future to the time a time where we have already written it. Right? It makes perfect right. sense. Yeah, and of course. Um, so <laughs> you could you just feel the adventure kicking off when they decide this and they're sneaking around now. Uh, of course, they steal their old phone booth grab the circuits of time phone book that's in there, punch in some numbers to go a couple of years into the future because they're sure they must have written it then. And we get our first air guitar. And again, goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was See, a great moment. Alex Winter like lights up. Like, you know, they do have this kind of world weariness about them as middle-aged guys that haven't done the thing they were supposed to do. But there's moments like this, like when they play that air guitar, that they are just kids again. They're mm-hmm. an excellent adventure and, you know, young guys. So yeah, so they travel a couple of years into the future and they visit a sadder, a sadder, more pathetic version of Bill and Ted um, who are playing at, uh, what, like a, a hotel, a hotel bar, right? Yeah, something like that. There's like eight people there. They're playing the song that uh, I think was their big hit, like, uh, <laughs> Let Them Rock, I think it's something like that. <laughs> something like that. And they're definitely living living in their van. <laughs> Look, the movie, if you haven't watched the movie, I don't know why you're listening to this, but if you have, you agree with us. There's so many long runs of just great laughs. And this begins one, when they first see the, the, the 2022 versions of them, see their, their old selves coming and they, to visit them and they run, they try to run <laughs> they away. They try to take uh, off. And then they get into the exchange with them, which is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Like we mentioned to Alex, I think some of the best moments in this film, and I know that moments you and I were laughing hardest were when they're arguing with themselves throughout oh, these definitely. moments in time. So yeah, and we forget our first glimpse at that Ted may have a drinking problem because he's carrying a <laughs> flask around with him. Back in the future, uh, they, the, the, the great leader says that there may be an alternative interpretation to the prophecy that says that Bill and Ted are supposed to unite the world that may require their death. So she sends a killer robot, played by Anthony Kerrigan, to assassinate Bill and Ted. And he'll pop up you know, a few times throughout the story here. Back in the present, in 2020, Billy and Theo really want to help out their dad. So when Kelly shows up looking for Bill and Ted, um, they suggest to her, they take her, her magic egg, her time-traveling egg, and get together a, a band of historic musicians. So they're ready to back up their, their dad uh, when they're going to play the song at 717 at MP46. Now, Billy and Thea seem like they're smarter and more knowledgeable than their dads. Yeah, and that brings me to the third thing we were worried about in the in the trailer. Yeah. Was this movie going to be just about the girls? 
and Bill and Ted be just along for the ride as the old dudes in the movie. Right. And I am happy to report that we we are satisfied yeah. with the way they are built into this story. Um, it all ties together. They're a part of it. Bill and Ted are still the main characters. Yeah. So check that off. Not a problem. All three things I was worried about, don't have to worry about if you yeah. haven't seen this yet. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Uh, Bill and Ted come back to this time now through the phone booth because uh, sad Bill and Ted got them worried that they were going to lose their wives. <laughs> So they hurry back now to the moment they left uh, the the couple's counseling and visit yeah. their wives and warn them about this. <laughs> about this is, what losers they're going to be. Yeah. I love this because they say, you know, <laughs> our future selves told us you're going to find out we're losers and that, you know, we may make it worse. And then they realize, oh, no, we did make it worse by doing this. Yeah. And then they run off. For the first time, and they say it a few times throughout the movie, they run off saying, don't worry, we're going to fix it. We'll fix <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> uh, and this time they realized they just they just screwed up. Look, we just didn't go far enough to the future. So yeah. they go instead a few more years into the future to 2025, where now it appears, you know, they're living in a giant mansion. And, and in the mansion, they find versions of themselves <laughs> that, you know, seem a little more clean cut than the, the versions performing at the hotel bar. And now they've got British accents. Yeah, this is probably my favorite run in the whole movie, this sequence. Yes. <laughs> yes. From them talking to the dudes at the Holiday Inn bar or whatever it was called, yep. to screwing up marriage counseling again, and then the British scenes. Yes. This is probably <laughs> the best 20 minutes of the movie right here for me. Uh, yeah, it just keeps getting funnier throughout the film. Yeah. The, the British versions explain to Bill and Ted... Uh, well, they explain why they sound British, but that's not as important <laughs> as they say they have the song and they hand them a CD. The guys listen to it and think, wow, this is fantastic. We, we as an audience don't get to hear it because if we did, we may recognize it as a Dave Grohl song. Because <laughs> it turns out that's Dave Grohl's house. Yep. And, and he shows up and all hell breaks loose. Ted definitely has a drinking problem because now he's just drinking straight out of a <laughs> bottle of vodka. Bottle. But it's funny because they, they bust in on them and they, they're like, hey. <laughs> and then they go through the whole sequence of back and forth. And they're like, you're going to take the song. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the funniest part is he goes, the part with the gun. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and he's like, you don't need to pull a gun on, on us. <laughs> and then he puts it down and they try to run. I thought that was hilarious. But it's not as funny as how they escape. But that <laughs> is hilarious. The thing. Yeah. They're going to do the thing. <laughs> yeah. So they're... Their future selves know every move their past selves make. So the past selves do the only thing they can do. Put buckets on their heads, spin around a few times, <laughs> and, just, and run around. And just run. When Bill falls out off of that balcony, <laughs> I can't help it. I just lose it every time. And then Ted, I think, falls right after that. It's so funny. Of course, the police arrive now because Dave Grohl's called the cops. And uh, Ted's dad's still a police officer. And uh, now uh, Deacon, his his brother, his little brother, is also a police officer, too. So they arrive at the scene. And also the killer robot arrives. Mm -hmm. And uh, while aiming for Bill and Ted, who are fleeing, and they get the escape in the phone booth, uh, the robot accidentally kills uh, Ted's dad. <laughs> this is the first glimpse we see of humanity, maybe, for this robot, because you could tell he knows he screwed up. It's just a real <laughs> yeah. subtle thing. Like in his eyes, I think he looks off to the side like, did anybody catch that? Yeah, like there's thought process going on on the robot all of a sudden. Mm, yeah, more on that in a moment. I think I have a question for you. 
Meanwhile, we see Billy and Thea is now traveling through time to recruit this historic band. And just to sort of lump it all together, we see them stop and get Jimi Hendrix, uh, Louis Armstrong, Mozart, Ling Lun, and Grom, who's a, who's a drum player. I thought this was interesting. I don't know if this was intentional, but when they meet Ling Lun, who's a Chinese, according to Chinese mythology, was the creator of music uh, in that culture, that they, they're surprised to learn that Ling, Ling Lun is a woman, because according to mythology, uh, Ling Lun was a man. And I, it just occurred to me after my second or third rewatch that that's the story of Bill and Ted face the music. According to the mythology in the future, the saviors are men, but it turns out they're wrong. Mm-hmm. You think that was a subtle clue? Yeah, I think so. And these, all these actors are great. Uh, oh, another thing I thought was interesting is Mozart. So the guy who plays Mozart, who for some reason is not credited in the film, he's an actor named Daniel Dorr. I don't know why he didn't get any, he's not mm. in the credits. Really? Uh, he's, a, he's originally from Munich, Germany, but he graduated from the American Academy of, of uh, Acting, Art, something like that, Acting. Um, I, what I thought was interesting was Mozart didn't look like that. You know, Mozart was not a handsome guy, mm-hmm. but he did look to me like another uh, Amadeus that we're familiar with, Falco. Doesn't <laughs> that did. guy look like Falco? He did look a lot more like Falco. And I was looking at side-by-side pictures of them today. Which would, make, dude was, which yeah. would make sense. Because of Rock Me Amadeus. Yeah. So yeah, it would make sense that they would do that. Yeah, another 80s tie-in mm-hmm. you know, for, for us idiots like us. And Grom was played by an actual drummer, Patty Ann Miller, who is an up-and-coming celebrity in her own right. Uh, most recently played uh, with Beyonce during the Super Bowl as a drummer. She's also been on tour with CeeLo Green. Um, it looks like she's on her, her road to bigger and better things. Oh, Another little Easter egg here is, I thought, maybe maybe it's, per, you know, who knows? By the way, when asked about Easter eggs in the film, in an interview, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves played coy like, what do you mean there's Easter <laughs> eggs in the movie? You don't know. But they did say that um, because of all the folks that worked on the film, the production artists, designers, etc., they did decorate the sets and put little things in the backgrounds that, you know, they weren't even aware of. Um, but there are some that they are aware of, including one we're going to get to in a little bit, um, that Keanu Reeves himself contributed. Um, but I thought this might be an Easter egg. When when Mozart and the gang f- first find Ling Lun and she's playing the flute, Mozart asks her for her flute uh, because Ling Lun also is credited for having uh, cre- invented the first bamboo flutes. Um, and he plays on there the melody from his from Mozart's Rondo alla Turca. And that is the same melody that we hear played by Extreme in Excellent Adventure in the mall scene. So, you know, if you remember he had that Beethoven's playing the keyboards, but we actually mm-hmm. hear a rock band playing this riff that's based on a Mozart song. It's the same song. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now another favorite sequence, Bill and Ted travel further into the future to 2050, where they meet the version of them that have been imprisoned. <laughs> <laughs> and they learn the reason why they're in prison is because just a few <laughs> just five years earlier, they were caught <laughs> in Dave Grohl's house. <laughs> I love how they say to the they say, why are you in prison? And the, the future selves, the prisoners say, because you left us to get caught in Dave Grohl's house and five years ago. And Bill says, huh, that's funny. That was like five minutes ago for us. <laughs> yeah. Ah, that hurts. And the prison versions of them are playing what they keep referring to as a song, which was like <laughs> the prisoners banging weights together and singing, welcome to, or saying, welcome to the end. <laughs> now, I, I actually paused the film quite a number of times to try to, see what all the tattoos were <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, none of them are, f- f- you know, 
fantastically interesting. Except one I think is particularly funny, but uh, Ted's got about eight tattoos, including excellent Elizabeth and Billy forever. Wild stallions is on one arm. Sandemus is on another arm. He's got two horses on his back. He's got a scorpion on one shoulder, a spider on the other. And I thought the funniest one was he has a tramp stamp that says, catch you later. <laughs> but in prison, having a tramp stamp that says, catch you later. Uh, okay, and Bill's got about seven tattoos. He's got heinous written on him. Uh, wild stallions. He has a heart on his head that looks like it probably says Joanna and Thea or Theodora forever. He's got an SD on his forehead, which I imagine is for Sandy Miss. <laughs> he's got a chain, a chain tattooed around his neck that's breaking. The links are breaking. And then on his back, he's got the word, a giant uh, a bird on his back with the word outlaw above it. I don't know the significance <laughs> of this bird, but the, the makeup on that was really fantastic. Yeah, the, the special effects in that scene for the, the yeah. body they put on those guys, I mean, they really probably wouldn't have had it done much to Keanu because... He's pretty ripped anyways, but they really went overboard with Alex. <laughs> yeah. He almost looks like the Hulk. <laughs> they made him almost as wide as he is tall. So <laughs> yeah. he was like a cube. <laughs> the special effects in this, the, the practical effects like this were done by Kevin Yeager. And Kevin Yeager, he doesn't seem like he does a lot a, a lot of films these days. But back in the 80s, you know, he's one of these go-to guys for special effects. So I thought that was kind of cool too. So <laughs> this Bill and Ted in the prison... You know, again, they keep saying they have a song and that they're going to travel back to the past to bring the song and they're going to replace uh, our Bill and Ted. But before they can make the switcheroo, the killer robot shows up and <laughs> Bill and Ted, prisoner Bill and Ted, know that they have to protect their younger selves, I guess you'd say, right? And so the prisoners just gang tackle <laughs> the robot. <laughs> yeah. And this is the part where Joanna and Elizabeth show up in the... Right, the prison, right. And once again, they say... <laughs> right, we'll fix it. Don't we'll worry fix about it. it. <laughs> just get we'll out of here. fix it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, back in the, the timeline with Billy and Thea, they have this historic band together. They go back to their house. Uh, I guess it's Ted's house. They live. They seem to live next door to yeah, each other. they live next door to each other. <laughs> right next door to each other. I, I think it's Ted. I don't know. It's one of their houses uh, in the garage where they have their studio set up. They tell the band, we're going to set up in this garage. We're going to rehearse and be ready. So then our dads come back with the song. We're going to be ready to play it in time. But as soon as they open the garage, the killer robot's in there, and he blasts the band and Billy and Thea and Kelly. And Kid Cuddy at this point. Oh, you're right. Kid Cuddy had just showed up right there in the cul-de-sac. Yep. He's not sure what's going on, but he's a genius as far <laughs> yeah. as it comes to... Time travel and yeah. all things like it. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know anything about Kid Cuddy, but he played that role so well. I think maybe he really has like a, you know, has is a philosophy degree or a degree in physics or something. I mean, just came off, you know... His tongue so easily. I know he's from Cleveland. Come on, so. another one? Yep. No, and there's somebody else in here who's from Cleveland. Oh, oh, <laughs> the actor who plays Missy. She's from Cleveland too, originally. So anyway, so yeah, so they get blasted to hell. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bill and Ted think, all right, we got to travel way into the future. <laughs> we got to have written this song by 2067. <laughs> and they arrive at an old folks home or retirement home that is called, and here's another Easter egg for you, Peaceful Pastures. And the logo is two horses mm. grazing in a field. Maybe two formerly wild stallions. <laughs> Get it? Yeah. This is one of my favorite scenes, is they have this heart-to-heart -heart with their much older selves. But um, they seem to have the goods. They give them a flash drive with the song on it that says, uh, says Logan and Preston on it. It says MP46. I think it says 7.17 p.m. Mm -hmm. And in the background, we see an older version of Joanna and Elizabeth steal the phone booth. Yep. Because they're, they're going back to tell their younger selves 
it seems we don't actually know. We, we, <laughs> we learned have that, no idea what they're don't doing. Don't know. Yeah, because at one point, I think it's the British Bill and Ted admit that they've been lying about. They lied about Joanna and Elizabeth when they were in the hotel bar, saying you lost your wives, as if they hadn't really lost them yet. But now they had when they're mm-hmm. robbing Dave Grohl's house. So we don't know what the old ones are telling them. I don't know. I just really loved that Ted was like, I never really knew you. Yes. I thought that was hilarious. He's talking to himself. And they agree that neither one yeah. of them knows him. Yeah. And he says something about like, uh, and it was hard because when I look at you, it's like I'm seeing myself. <laughs> yeah. Such <laughs> great writing right there. Ah, uh, yes. So when they try to leave the old folks home and now go back, now they have the song, they're going to go play the song and save the world, uh, their, their phone booth's gone. But instead, the killer robot is there. And the killer robot now is having a nervous breakdown. The kill, yeah. killer robot uh, is, is seeming more and more human by the moment here. Uh, his voice no longer seems like this, you know, sort of oscillated uh, robotic uh, machine. Sounds, sounds more like a person. And he feels bad that he has accidentally killed uh, Ted's dad <laughs> and, the, and, Ted, and Pitbull and Ted's kids. And so he, he, he says he has to apologize to them. And he admits the things he's done. Um, Bill and Ted, upon hearing this, now insist that uh, he kill them so they can be sent to hell to save their kids. He won't kill them, though, because they have the song, so the guys destroy the flash drive. Yes. But the killer robot still won't kill them because he had, he says his killing days are behind him, and he's starting to have a nervous breakdown, and instead he says he's going to kill himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as he goes to kill himself, Bill and Ted jump on top of him. <laughs> so he kills all three of them, and they now they're all falling down to hell. So Bill and Ted go to hell. They've been there before, so... Uh, if they, they, yeah, they know their way around pretty good, so... They know their way around. And you know what? One thing I loved about, even in, even in Excellent Adventure, Bogus Journey, and now today, even though they... Even if they hadn't been in hell before, like in Bogus Journey, it doesn't really phase them a whole lot. They just no. kind of roll with whatever. Yeah, they just don't care. They They're are, not worried about it. They'll get it, you know. They'll find a way. It. Yeah. In hell, we see... Here's another Easter egg. We do see Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson make one of their usual cameos. So they've cameoed in every film... In this one, they appear as two demons uh, who help Bill and Ted uh, with directions. In, in earlier films, Bill, uh, or rather, Ed and Chris appeared in the mall at the, what was it called? The Ziggy Zuggy the ice cream place. Yeah, when, when Napoleon eats the ice cream, yeah. They're the waiters. And then in Bogus Journey, they are attending the seance where Bill and Ted appear as ghosts. Uh, and in this film, these, they're these two demons. In each of the films, they're billed as ugly something and stupid something. So... Uh, <laughs> Chris Matheson's usually ugly, so he's the ugly... Not that he is ugly. He's billed as ugly. So he's the ugly waiter, ugly seancer, and ugly demon, and uh, Ed Solomon is the stupid. So stupid waiter, (laughs) stupid seancer, stupid demon. Um, We also learn that the robot has a name. (laughs) Yeah, Dennis. This is also one of the funniest known to me, Dennis, and he keeps going on. I also have a middle name. Yeah. Um, Why does a robot go to hell? Even Bill and Ted say, and somehow it seems a robot came to hell. That's weird. (laughs) And then when Kelly says, wait, you named the robot after my ex-boyfriend mom, that's messed up. <laughs> I'm starting to think, did uh, her mom, the, the great leader, take her um, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, and turn him into a robot? I don't, I don't know. But that would explain all these things away. <laughs> it's just funny that the robot all of a sudden is just like, I'm Dennis. <laughs> yes. And he won't shut up about it. And he's apologizing. Yes. Eventually, 
to get out of hell, they're going to have to negotiate with death, much like they did in Bogus Journey. So they track down uh, William Sadler's death, who is, uh, just like in Bogus Journey, uh, is now playing games, but by himself. And <laughs> he's still cheating. Uh, yeah. This is what we learned, like uh, Ray had uh, mentioned at the beginning, that uh, they had a falling out due to the fact that um, when he left the band, he took he tried to take the name Wild Stallions with him. So they sued him. They got a restraining order against him. Uh, this has caused a great amount of tension between them. Which since. which creates an excellent scene right here where he's like, oh, am I allowed to be this close to you? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, he's great. Yeah, and they, they eventually have to you know work through their differences, which they do, uh, with the help of their daughters. They come mm-hmm. together because they need, in the very least, they need death to get out of hell. Right. They may also need an amazing bass player, which is what they tell them. Yeah, and um, when they make up, the three of them do air guitar. Yeah. And there were some moments in Bogus Journey where they did this. And just like there, when they do the air guitar, they add a bass. Someone's doing a bass sound now, too. So <laughs> when they leave hell, they arrive at MP46, which turns out it's a mile marker on a highway that runs through San Dimas. The kids decide immediately we got to get to work prepping for the, their dads to play the song. So there's a flatbed truck they use. It happens to be a guitar center truck there with gear that they can use to start getting uh, instruments out for the musicians. And another Easter egg, off to the side of the highway is a sign for uh, a Circle K. And it looks like it's a sign that would indicate maybe that one is on its way, like a future site of a Circle K, because it's just a kind of a sign in the middle of a, a lot on the side of the highway there. Of course, Circle K being the place where Bill and Ted first met Rufus in an excellent adventure. Mm-hmm. When ben Bill and Ted arrive now with death and the other folks that they've uh, saved from hell, they admit to their daughters now for the first time that they do not have the song. But shortly thereafter, they realize that they weren't the ones to write the song, that in fact it would be their daughters, that they were in fact, their daughters are also a Preston and Logan, and so therefore it's probably them. I actually really like that. Yeah. That is a father... You know, you spend a lot of time doing things and trying to figure it out. Yeah, I really like this because it made them like we did all this to get to this point, and it was never us that were the heroes of this entire story. Yeah, it was our daughters. So I really like that. Yeah, I know a lot of people probably won't, but I thought that was super cool, and it it, it adds to the adult part of the movie. I, and I think it's very relatable. At some point in my life, I don't know what middle. Life, midlife crisis I was going through, probably my first one, which is my 30s, I think. I, I guess I thought I would be dead by 60. But I, there was a, something that dawned on me where I thought, you know, I may not accomplish everything I set out to accomplish in my life. So the, if, if the one thing I accomplish is helping my daughter, who was just, you know, a few years old at that point, become a great person, that would be my greatest, the greatest contribution I could make. And so, yeah, when that in that moment in the movie, I thought, yeah, there is this kind of you're right. Mature sort of thing, realization you, you hope to come to in life where you are ready to pass things on to your kids and, you know, raise yeah. them well and put all your hopes in them, I guess. I thought it was really contemporary that the daughters say, <laughs> we don't know how to play music or write music, but they know a lot about music and have studied it. So, of course, you know, some of the gear they get out are like these pads for controlling samples. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of how a lot of kids make music these days. You know, it's, they don't have instruments. They've got a right. you know, MIDI controller. Yeah, which I thought was actually current and actually would be how they would do it, actually. So I like that they were not musicians. Yeah, another difference between them and their dads. You know, I guess we didn't point out, but that their dads in all this time are are accomplished musicians now. They didn't write the song, but they each play several instruments and well. 
So their daughters are busy now putting together what ultimately will be the song that will, you know, bind the universe, save all reality and time. And they realize one of the things they need to do, though, is to unite the world is they're going to have to get instruments to people throughout time and have everybody throughout time playing the same song at the same time. I keep saying the word time. Um, so Kid Cudi, in his last bit of wisdom, <laughs> helps them figure out how they can use the phone booth to do this. And uh, another little throwback to the earlier films is that when Kid Cudi is leaving after giving them this, this uh, direction is he says goodbye to them saying station. Yes. Which uh, of course is the name of the character from uh, Bogus Journey that helped uh, Bill and Ted, the alien that could split into two or combine into one. That's the only word that station said was station. And so station would say station. Now I was, my thought at this moment was, wait a second, how does Kid Cudi know about station? But when I watched uh, the end of Bogus Journey, that montage ends, the very last moment is Bill and Ted are going, are being blasted off into space to go to Mars to play uh, Station. Hmm. So it seems like the world would know about Station. I don't know. It's still cool that they got a Station in there. It was awesome. I loved Station and I loved that moment too. So in order to be able to travel through time, they go back into the phone booth. They're punching in uh, numbers that they believe they need to do, to use in order to, to become infinite Mm-hmm. infinite copies of themselves or something like that. And the first two digits of the phone number they have to dial are 69. 69, dude. <laughs> and that is Keanu Reeves's contribution to the Easter eggs. So after they do this thing where they spread out instruments throughout all time, tell folks throughout time what to play, Bill and Ted get on stage because they realize that their role in this is to support their children. And they grab a couple of guitars and they shred in this dual, you know, harmony solo that they're playing. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Again, I got chill, I got chills hearing that then. And the uh, princesses also play along, much like they did or were learning to do in the original film and then in Bogus Journey. And they save the world. I think that's it. Right? Uh, except for the post-credit scene. Yeah. Did you stick around? If you didn't stick around, you got to go check that out. Yeah. You got to wait till all the credits are done, but it's worth it. It is. You got to wait till that ending because it's fantastic, actually. Do we talk, should we talk about it or should it be the one thing we don't spoil because maybe people didn't see well, it? Well, let's not, we're not going to spoil that one. All right. I guess that's it. So, uh, did we, did we prove anything today, Will? Hmm. Hmm. We could just say goodbye. We have proven. Oh, Christ. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Really? Wow. That Bill and Ted. Face the Music Mm -hmm. is definitely the best movie of 2020. Wow, yes. And Ray does not need a time machine to travel throughout the rest of the year to know that. No, I don't. All right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. 